Last week we started this new series on free indeed and the promise of being free in Christ. And uh, this morning I, I want us, as we think about breaking free from the bondage uh, that ties us up and snags us in life, I, I hope for some of you that this message this morning is a boost of confidence that, that gives you a little bit more boldness and peace. And I'm guessing that for some of you it's going to be a message of attraction, that there's something you're going to hear that you're going to say, I, I want that, I don't think I have it, I haven't experienced it like that. Uh, either way, uh, I pray that this is a message from the Lord for you, as it has been for me. This is the uh, path we're taking. This is kind of our journey over the next few weeks. Last week, we talked about freedom and, and explored a little bit what God's definition of freedom is. And how that uh, is very similar, but much broader and much greater than uh, kind of our American cultural sense of freedom. It's not just about freedom between people and freedom in political terms, but it is spiritual freedom. It's eternal freedom. And uh, how that's a little bit different. Today, we're going to talk about being free from sin. Next week, free from shame, which is kind of the leftovers of sin. Um, that, that we tend to notice around us that uh, we may notice too much. And then uh, two weeks from today, we'll talk about being free for new opportunities and how God releases us because he wants us uh, to do and explore new things with him. So every time I write a sermon that I use the word sin in the title, I I check myself a little bit. I don't like to do that. And I don't like to do that because of a couple of things. One is I know there are people who come and they go, I don't want to come to church and just have the pastor tell me how bad I am. You don't need that. You don't need that from me. Um, my guess is that most of you have a pretty healthy sense of your own guilt. And if you don't, you will. Uh, or, or at least you'll be aware of it, of your own guilt. Now, there are some people who just kind of, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but also then, I, I pull back from using sin in a title because I think, well, you know, that seems to carry a lot of negativity with it. And I am a firm believer that the preached word is all about telling the good news of Jesus Christ. But I'm also reminded that People don't recognize good news until they recognize bad news. And so in our world today, it's very simple. We can look around us and we can see all the time, over and over again, there's lots of examples of it. And for some of us, it's right close by. We can see where things went awry, where people did things they shouldn't have done, maybe even we ourselves, and it got us into a mess. And it made things complicated, it charged things emotionally, and it distanced us from God. That's it. That's it. We can talk about a definition of sin. There's all kinds of definitions of sin, a willful wrongdoing against God or choosing to do what doesn't please God. One of my favorites, because it doesn't let any of us off the hook, is when we miss the mark. I like that one. Sin is when we miss the mark. And we miss a lot, don't we? 
In our tradition uh, here, for being part of the Free Methodist Church and our holiness tradition, we've held on to this thing where we, we want to believe and we want to strive for a life that is no longer defined by sin. And we've gone over scripture and we've looked at how this looks in the lives of people. And uh, we've come up with a, a concept of becoming more like God, less like the world, more holy, less carnal, fleshly, sinful. Call it sanctification. Some of you are nodding your head. You've been in those church services and heard those fiery sermons about having our lives cleansed. We need to hear that. What happens to us, though, or what's happening around us a lot, though, is that people that are called out for wrongdoing find all kinds of ingenious and determined ways to avoid admitting the wrongdoing. I mean, we work really hard to say what I did was somehow acceptable or maybe at least understandable, or what happened to me made sense, or what I chose to do, if you understood my circumstances, you would have done the same thing. We say things like that. And we adopt positions about our own wrongdoing where we say, you know what, if this comes up, I've got to have a defense. I've got to be able to defend myself. So if somebody comes and goes, why did you do that? We say something like, I didn't do it. Or we say something like, yeah, I did it, but that was the right thing to do. Or one of the ones that's becoming really popular in our culture today is, I know it was bad, but it wasn't as bad as fill in the blank. So it's a, I know this was bad, but it could have been worse. So you should be thankful that my sin is not a really bad sin. Right? I mean, we, and we can go on and on. There's, there are thousands of iterations of those things, and I haven't even scratched the surface where people come along and say, you know, no. I mean, one of the things that we do is when people point out our sin, usually they point out my sin by honking their horn. <laughs> you know? And um, I decided a while ago, and I don't, I don't think this works. I just got to confess. I thought this would work better than it. But I decided when I am not paying attention and I might have a traffic infraction and somebody honks at me, I will wave at them. And be friendly, kind of like, thank you for pointing that out. I will try to be a better driver. But I think most people interpret that as he is clueless. I honk at him to let him know that he's out of line and he has cut me off or he's not following traffic rules and the law. And he waves at me. He thinks I'm saying hi. I don't need that. <laughs> See, I'm just, I'm just rationalizing it. I'm doing the same thing. Everybody. Okay. Wow. So give him the God, way. help us. Give him the one way of Jesus. Wow. Yeah, so, so here's the thing. When we honk at other people, they usually don't wave the same way, right? <laughs> and, and so I... When, when my daughter, Linnea, started driving, I, I told her, look, this is going to happen. And when it does, you need to understand what they're saying is, 
That is, that, that is a universal sign for saying, it's my fault. <clears throat> because people, when you point out their wrongdoing, have a strong tendency to react. They don't go, oh, thank you. Let me correct that. They go, oh, really? And then, you know, things kind of escalate. And then you go from a minor infraction on the road with a few hand gestures to go to road rage and shootings and things that spin out of control. But that's the definition of sin in our world, where a minor infraction coupled by a terrible response, which is followed by some kind of rationalization or explaining it away, and things just escalate to the point where they become violent, where they become broken, where they get to the point where we believe it is irreparable. You see, what happens is sin has a way of doing this where a wrongdoing is often answered with another wrongdoing, which then starts to form a web. It, it, it starts to just kind of tangle things up and ensnare them and get them all caught up. When I was a kid, yeah, I was one of these kids, we like to do little projects, we like to make things, and um, in church they taught us how to make things like little bookmarks for our Bibles, and, and little cards for our moms, and things like that. It was great. But I was creative enough, and human enough, and destructive enough, that I went on, to, I, I, we tried to create everything. I was a boy, and you guys here, you did the same thing, some of you. And so we went from creating bookmarks and cards to, like, homemade weapons. <laughs> you ladies are laughing. None of the guys are laughing. They're all looking down. <laughs> and so we started making things. So in metal shop in high school, we tried to make Chinese stars and nunchucks and things like that. And we would make them really quietly and sneak them out in our book bag so the shop teacher would see what we did. It was much more inviting than bookends, <laughs> cutting boards. You guys, see, I got guys laughing because you were there. You did it too. It's not just me. Well, we made this thing, and some of you guys, we made these things called, we snuck golf balls in, and we made these things called bolos. And it's just two golf balls with a piece of rope between them. And, and you take one of the golf balls and you start swinging it and you throw it and they, they, they come from South America and they snag the legs of an animal and it just wraps up around there. And, and we got to practicing these after school. You know, and we, okay, run. And so one of the guys would run and we'd throw them and he'd go down and we'd laugh. We thought that was hilarious. And, and you know, we just started doing this stuff. But th that thing, when it wraps around you, I mean, it wraps around you. You're not just going to be able to outrun what's going on here. Well, one day, you know, we built these things. We made these things, wrote a couple of golf balls. And, and then, then one of the guys got serious, and he brought pool, billiard balls. And that, I mean, this is getting serious. Then things up, up the ante a little bit. So we made one out of those. And, and we were testing it after school. Okay, run. And the guy ran. Well, it wasn't me. Okay, which is another sin rationalization, but I'm honestly telling the truth. I didn't throw it. But the guy ran, and the, the, my other friend that threw it, threw a little high. You know, his aim was a little bit off. He was straight. And so he connected with the guy running, but it, it connected rather high on his shoulders. And one of those pool balls wrapped around him, him in the face, which left a mark. 
<laughs> See, and I, I have lived with that image because when I think about sin, I think about the same thing. And it just kind of starts with something that seems kind of fun and innocent, but it kind of entangles us and it has an element of risk and danger to it. And then when it goes wrong, it, it hurts. And it leaves marks. See, sin that is compounded by responses that are not godly, that are then followed by other acts that are not the way God would have us act. It just makes this whole net that entangles us, and it is hard to get out of it. And, you know, kids do this all the time where they come in and mom or dad says, did you do this? No, I didn't do it. And then, you know, all of a sudden you get this outlandish story very quickly to where lie is followed by lie and another lie. But I'll tell you what, kids are novices. They're amateurs. Because there are adults that construct these things. And they construct them in amazing ways. And they construct them so well that they can bring themselves to the point where they can believe the net they have created more than the truth they have avoided. And it becomes so easy then to say, you know what, it is better it makes more sense to continue in this unhealthy, ungodly pattern of telling ourselves things that aren't true. That is far easier than delving into the truth, which would probably destroy us. I had a conversation with a pastor this week, quick texting back and forth, and they were texting me back, asking for a little bit of advice and certainly a lot of encouragement and prayer. I really think that's what they wanted. But as they were unpacking the situation that they were facing, I, I came to a point where I texted back and I said, they're not, the people you're dealing with are not willing to deal with the truth. They're not willing to look at things the way they are. And the pastor sent back and said, yeah, that's exactly right. These, these leaders in my church are not accepting what's going on in our congregation. They're saying, no, that's not it. Let, let's just keep going. And I went on to say they fear. And my response was they fear that the truth will not set them free. But rather that the truth will destroy them. If we admit to how bad things are in our church, we're done. We're finished. But if we can keep covering up so that the next visitors that come in, the next guests we have in our congregation, we can pretend that no, 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 no. She's not that mad with her over there that they're not talking. And he didn't have an affair with them. You know, and I just said, if you cover that up, the bolo wraps around and you will fall on your face and a billiard ball will smack you and leave them off. You see, we cover it up because what we fear the most, oftentimes, is the embarrassment, the embarrassment of having our sin uncovered. In the world we live in today, the worst thing is to be exposed for something that everybody finds shameful. 
In the world today, people will do all kinds of things that are highly inappropriate and destructive, but if they don't find it shameful, they'll do it right out in the open. If they don't see that it's bad, they don't care. But if society finds it shameful, we will hide and run and cover and look for ways to say, I did not do that. I am not going to answer for that. It's not my fault. It's not my deal. Let's pretend it never happened. When this happens, when we get to this point, those kinds of lies, that kind of net has power over us. We can no longer walk. We can no longer run because it has wrapped us up and thrown us down and we are incapacitated. Years ago, I was asked by a, a conference superintendent serving in another conference. They asked me to go and to consult with a, a church, a congregation that were really struggling. Their numbers had dwindled a lot. They were struggling financially. Their pastor had become so discouraged they resigned. And so I drove. It was about an hour and a half away. I drove and uh, on a weekday evening. I didn't know any of these people. I didn't know the history of the church. I walked in completely clueless as to what was going on. And about 10 minutes later, I was, I was shocked. I sat there in this meeting with lay people, lay leaders from the church. There were about six of them out of a church that had dwindled to about 15. And as I sat there, they began to tell these stories. And, and I could tell they'd just been waiting for someone to come in who is kind of detached so we can just, we can just open the closet and get the skeletons out. And so they started telling these stories. This is what happened. And that Sunday they came in and this, this man came in and he just yelled. He just yelled at everybody. And people just got up and left before church even started. And they started telling these kind of stories. And I, I answered them by saying, you know, if he's willing to do that here in church, he'll end up doing that out in the community. And it will embarrass the church. They'll go, you go to what church? And you act like this? And they stopped me. And they said, oh, you, you know what? He's already been banned from the high school because he went into the high school office and yelled and threatened people. And I sit here and I go, this is obvious. This is sinful. This is evil. Oh, we know, but we don't know how to change it. Well, the answer was not sending Hank Smithers to sit at the table. The answer was that only Jesus Christ can break the power of that sin. They were embarrassed. And here's the thing. It had taken all of the energy of that church to fortify themselves to go to church on Sunday morning with the fear that he would show up. That was it. Everybody's mind every Sunday morning was thinking, what are we going to do if he's here? And I said, you know what? You can't worship because your minds are not on that. Your hearts aren't free for that. You can't share good news with people out in the community because you're thinking about him and all the bad news is going on in the church. And as I said those things, the heads were nodding. People were exactly. That's exactly it. And we don't know what to do. And I, I was grieved. I, in my heart of hearts, I was grieved because I thought, these are God's people. These are God's children. 
and we do not understand and we cannot exemplify what it means to have the chains of sin broken. Here's a passage for us. I told you we were going to be looking at Romans. We looked a little bit at chapter 5 last week. This is in chapter 6. I'm going to jump from 5 through 7 then on to a little bit later in the chapter. So if you're following in your Bible, bear with me. Paul says this to the, the believers in Rome. If we were united together in death like his, in a death like his, and he's referring to Jesus Christ, you know, being crucified. Some translations say if we, if we are crucified with Christ, we will also be united together in the resurrection like his. This is what we know. The person that we used to be was crucified with him in order to get rid of the corpse that had been controlled by sin. I like those words. That way, we wouldn't be slaves to sin anymore. Because a person who has died has been freed from sin's power. So what? Should we sin because we aren't under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Sorry, I jumped ahead here. Verse 16. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, that you are slaves of the one whom you obey? That's true whether you serve as slaves of sin, which leads to death, or as slaves of the kind of obedience that leads to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves to sin, you gave wholehearted obedience to the teaching that was handed down to you, which provides a pattern. Now that you've been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking with ordinary metaphors because of your limitations. I just got to stop there for a moment because every time I read this, I go, man, Paul, that's rough. I would be reading that going, so, you know. My limitations. I'm, I'm talking to you about this as a, as a slave, so you understand because you can't understand this. Once you offer the parts of your bodies to be used as slaves to impurity and to lawless behavior, that leads to still more lawless behavior. Remember the net? One lie followed by another lie. Once you were slaves to that stuff, now you should present the parts of your body as slaves to righteousness, which makes your lives holy. Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were freed from the control of righteousness. What consequences did you get from doing things that you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, you have the consequence of a holy life. And the outcome is eternal life. Verse 23, is when we all know the wages of sin that sin pays are death. But God's gift is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Amen. So here's the thing. As we read this, and, and, and we try to wrap our minds around the situation Paul was, Apostle Paul was speaking into, and he says, you know, I want you to understand this. So you understand slavery and, and how slaves, you know, they've got to do, they have to obey. 
They're, they're, they're bound to their masters. I'm going to talk about it this way, because this you guys will understand, because you guys just don't get it. That's what he said, basically. But as he talked about that, he goes, you need to understand that when you come to Christ, your guilt is killed with him. It is dead with him. I, I think the reason that Paul uses this is because God used it in very direct and real and literal ways with his son. The wages of sin was death. Jesus had to die. And we need to understand that when we come to Christ and we ask for freedom from our sin, God has one way of dealing with our sin. One way. Kill it. Kill it. So, I want to stop here because I want, I want to tell you another story. Uh, a few years ago, we were over in Africa at our hospital in Mozambique, and we were tearing down an old water tower. It had this um, plastic water tank on top that had it decayed and collapsed and was broken. And, and so we pulled the tank off of the top. And when we pulled the tank off, we just wrapped ropes around it, pulled it down by hand, and the thing fell down. And when it fell down, there was a snake inside. And the snake came out right away. It fell about 20 feet inside that tank, and the top was off of the tank, and it popped out. And as you can imagine, in Africa, when a snake pops out, everybody's attention is on the snake. I mean, they're known to be not so friendly and deadly. And so we all jumped, or at least I did, and everybody else that was responding appropriately did. And uh, one of my Mozambican brothers, Raphael, grabbed a shovel. I mean, grabbed, didn't even hesitate. There wasn't even a moment of thought. It was like, muscle memory. It was it was like instinct just kicked in. And he grabbed that shovel and started walking toward the stake and he brought the shovel back up. And as he did, our field agent over there, Franco, starts yelling, no, 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 don't kill it. And Raphael isn't he's hearing nothing. He doesn't stop and go, why? Oh, he didn't, he didn't even slow down in his steps. He stepped in and he whacked that snake into two pieces and it was dead and it was gone and the snake was dead. And Franco comes over and goes, wait, 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 we should, we should have waited. We need these snakes to take care of mice and rats and it may not be poisonous and all these, you know, we could have moved it. And, all, and he's going through all this rationalization and I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I understand what he's trying to say. It makes sense. But me and every one of my African brothers standing there go, you might have good reason, but we have a better one. <laughs> that snake could kill me. And when he grabbed the shovel and started moving in, I wasn't saying, no, no, no. I was going, oh, praise God. <laughs> Just take care of him right now and do not let him get bit. I think it's hilarious when people find out I grew up in Africa and they go, oh, so you got used to being around all those things? Sure I did. I can react to them really quickly. <laughs> I never did like them. Sorry, Ben. He's not here this morning. But here's the thing. My friend Raphael had this automatic response. This is how you deal with it. And here's the thing. 
God has the same response to our sin. Oh, there's something you want dealt with? Let me deal with it. I'm, I'm not going to massage it. I'm not going to surgically excise it. I'm not going to talk it out of being a part of your life. I'm going to kill it. It is radical. But let's remember the price of our sin was extreme and the response of God was radical. I will send my son and you will kill him and he will pay the price of your sin. So Paul uses that language and then he goes on to say, listen, once you recognize that and you recognize that your sin is no longer there, you are free of it, it is dead. You are free to obey. You are no longer caught up in all that stuff, all that net, all the lies upon lies, all the rationalizations, all the wounds, all the harm. You're no longer caught up on that. You are free to obey. And this obedience is a new tether. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later next week. But he says, now, think about this. You offer your obedience to God. So instead of obeying sin and doing what you used to do because it seemed easy, it seemed like it was pragmatic, it seemed like that's the way to get around this, now give your conscience, offer this consciously to God. Think about it and say, God, I want to no longer do that and I want to do what you want to do. In fact, a little bit later in the book, Paul goes on to explain, you know, there are times when I know what I should do and I don't do what I should do. I want to do it, but I don't do it. He gets into this whole confusing little aside about his own journey with sin. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that God does for us. It's not just about a conscious understanding I want to obey, but it's also about an internal guide that helps us understand this is wrong. And this is harmful. And this should be let go. Last, uh, a week ago yesterday, uh, we had our men's breakfast. And um, we signed a paper about confidentiality, saying we wouldn't share what was shared in men's breakfast because we want freedom to, to tell each other things. And, and the... the the challenge that Saturday morning was on confession and confessing to one another. And we walked through some scripture and we thought this through. And, and uh, then an opportunity was given. And, and one man said something about, I want you to know there's a, there's a trait that I'm dealing with. There's a pattern in my life I'm not broken. And, and as you can imagine, it was pretty quiet in there when that was said. I've been in a couple of these type of settings in my life where someone is bold enough to speak up and broken enough to say, you know, this has got to change. And people start kind of looking down and say, boy, if he's willing to deal with that, I guess I've got to deal with it. And if he's willing to speak up with it, I guess I've got to keep him accountable and I've got to keep him encouraged and I've got to make sure I pray for him. And that it just comes with a lot of responsibility. But here's the thing. Once we confess, and when we confess to one another, it becomes something that internally we refocus our actions. We say, look, I'm going to I'm going to change 
the guide inside. I don't want that to be normative anymore. I don't want that to be my default setting. I want my default setting to look like something else. I want something else to be normative in my life. And it's got to happen internally because the circumstances around us are not going to change. Just because I no longer want to be a sinful person doesn't mean that everybody's going to change the way they drive. Just because I no longer want to be a sinful person doesn't mean my wife's job has no more stress. Just because I don't want to be a sinful person doesn't mean my pastor's not going to say something inappropriate. It happens. But hopefully the needle, the spiritual needle inside of us gets redirected away from the pattern and the web of sin toward the person of God and the pattern of righteousness. That's what Paul says. And I think it's like a compass shifting and there's there's a new magnetic pull, an internal pull that says, no, 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 this is true north, not that. That was a facsimile. That was a fake. And you thought it would give you freedom and you thought it would give you comfort and you thought it would give you the opportunity to not be embarrassed, but this will set you free. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's a new magnetic north and one we can trust. So here's the thing. If that kind of internal work can happen in our heart, it means that the control of our heart is taken away from the web and given to the master. And as that happens, and our compass is turned to the true north, our lives begin to hunger for that direction. Now, we can spend a whole lot of time debating sanctification and holiness and transformation of the human being into the person that God wants them to be. I'm not sure I can give you a good argument for how it happens. I think I can give you a theological argument. It probably won't be that convincing if you've got a bone to pick with me. I can't do that. But what I can do that will outdo your argument is I can point to people and go, they are not the same. They're not the same as they were. Something happened, and they have been revolutionized. They've been transformed and What's going on inside of them is completely reoriented. They are hungry for being holy. They may not be there. They may still have issues, but they are hungry for being holy. And I think that's where we need to be. There's this word that comes up, and, and, and we find it in a passage in Matthew. I'll bring it to you in a moment. But it's a word that, that hangs us up because it, it, we read it, and we tend to go, oh, no way. And the word in Greek is teleos. And uh, you don't have to go and look it up because I'm going to tell you, it often is translated in many translations of the Bible as perfect. And then there's iterations in more than one place in the Bible about being perfect as God is perfect. And, and uh, let me go to that. I'll come back. Matthew 5:48 is one of them. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That perfect word in Greek is teleos. And that teleos word gets people hung up because they go, perfect, right. 
And, and you could say, okay, so Hink, are you telling me you're perfect? Well, if you define perfection as being flawless, you can tell that's not true. If you can define perfection as being um, unspotted, unmarked, that isn't true. If you were to x-ray my body, you would see the residual and the results of sin. I mean, literally, in my bones, you would see where bones had been broken and healed because I did stupid things. I missed the mark. And if you were to spend enough time with me, you'd see there are certain things that I do that you go, why do you do it that way? And I would say, well, because I broke my hand in high school. And some of you heard me tell the story about getting a shot in my shoulder and the doctor starts jamming the needle in and it doesn't go. And I'm in quite a bit of discomfort. And he goes, you have an anatomical abnormality. That was the words he used, which has become a family joke. Um, so that's kind of cool. But uh, as he said that, I'm like, what? What do you mean? It's my shoulder. And then I realized that, oh, you know, <laughs> I broke that collarbone twice. And things shifted around, and I'm healed up, and I can use my arms, but they're not the way I was born. But thank God, I healed. And so if you say, well, Hink, are you perfect, or are you flawless? Of course not. Not only was I injured, but I've lived long enough that now I'm getting old. And so I'm not perfect. I can't. I can't run very far. I'm not strong enough to pick up heavy things. I'm not good looking enough to attract much attention around town. I'm not smart enough to land a really good, high paying job. I can go on and on. I am not perfect. I cannot do advanced calculus. I don't understand astrophysics. I can go on and on. I am not perfect. If that's your definition of perfect, nobody is. But that's not what teleos means. You see, you go back here. Teleos means, it, it is often translated as perfect, but it is also sometimes translated as mature or complete. One of my college professors just turned the light bulb on for me when we were discussing and debating this thing. And he goes, you know what? If we were to go down to the hospital and walk into the maternity uh, wing and say, could we look at a newborn baby? Just pick one. And they went into the nursery and picked up a child and came and handed him to us. And, and we got to look at this baby. You, you know what happens with adult human beings when you put a baby in their arms. And we would look and we would probably smile. And we would move. That's, it's like this inborn you know, pendulum thing in us. You put a baby in our arms and we start swinging. And we'd start looking at this little tiny feet and hands and fingers and fingernails. And, and we'd, we'd probably comment on how much hair they had or didn't have and the color of their eyes. And, and they would just be completely dependent on us. And sooner or later, I would almost guarantee it, somebody who cares about that baby would say, they're perfect. They're perfect. 
Not because they can do advanced calculus or understand astrophysics or can run a marathon. Of course not. But at that moment in time, that baby is everything that God intends it to be. And so here's what I think. When God says, I'm going to reorient your heart, and I'm going to redirect you, and I'm going to make you holy, and I want you to be perfect as I am perfect, at this moment, I want you to be everything I intend you to be. You don't have to have it all figured out. Thank goodness. You don't have to have it all taken care of. Because we got a lot of stuff to take care of. But you have to be everything God intends you to be at this moment. And then I would add this, and you need to be on the trajectory of maturity and being whole. Whole and complete. This is what I think it means to be free from sin. We're not perfect. We still make mistakes. We say things we didn't intend to say. We lose our temper at times. We disappoint our loved ones. But let us be oriented toward God, freed from the burden of our sin and everything he intends us to be. And come on up, we're going to pray and uh, sing together. Lord, as we... Uh, as we just take a moment, for some of us, we needed this encouragement. One of the lies that we struggle with is that I'll never get there. I'll never be what God wants me to be. I don't have it. I'm, I'm missing pieces I will never get. And we need to be reminded, Lord, that the truth is that the piece that's missing is one that should have been gone. When you freed us from our sin, it was put to death. And so we need to just gather some confidence and some peace in knowing that you, you take our sin and scripture tells us you take it as far as the east is from the west and you remember it no more. And we don't know how you do that because we remember it every time someone reminds us. But we just need the confidence and the peace of knowing that we are free from our sin. And then Lord, some of us here go, yeah, I'm not free. It's, it's still hanging on me. And I dealt with it last night. I've got to deal with it tomorrow morning. And I don't want to. I want to lie. I want to run. And remind us, Lord, that that true north, that truth sets us free. Remind us, Lord, that when we expose our sin to your light, it may be the scariest thing we ever do, but it is also the most hopeful thing we will ever do. When we say, Lord, let us open it up that you may come in and cleanse us and clean all that stuff out. Lord, that is the biggest step of faith anyone could ever take. And so if, if any of my brothers and sisters here today are in that place, I, I pray, God, that your spirit would draw them and say, yes, please, let me put it to death. Let me kill it off and say, We'll have our tithes and offerings now.